Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we're continuing our Easter, its purpose and promise series today with a message entitled, Jesus, Between the Grave and the Resurrection. So grab your Bibles now, and let's join Dr. John Newfeld. The Gospel of John is a gospel that has the most, that is, two chapters worth on the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And furthermore, John tells us that it was a woman, Mary Magdalene, who was the first person to see the resurrected Jesus on that which we now call Easter Sunday morning. She had come to the tomb early. The Sabbath was over, and it was she who saw that the stone was rolled away, and it was she who went to tell Peter and John. And after the dust had settled and after the other women had left and after Peter and John had left, Mary is left all alone before the empty tomb. And in the emptiness of that scene, she's overcome by emotion and begins to weep. And as she weeps, for the first time, she looks into the tomb and is startled. It's not empty. Two angels are sitting where the body of Jesus was once lain. They ask her why she's weeping and she, still not believing that her Lord is risen, begins to explain. They have taken away the body, and I don't know where it was laid. And she turns to go, and Jesus is standing before her, but she doesn't recognize him. Jesus repeats the question of the angels, and she, supposing him to be the gardener, explains to him what she has just explained to the angels. He then says her name, Mary, and something in that voice, well, she's heard it many times, and she says, Rabboni, teacher. The response of Jesus is really quite puzzling. John 20, verse 17 says, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And Don Carson says that this belongs to a handful of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. I mean, one reason for that is we do know that, in short order, Jesus will appear to the twelve, and Thomas will not believe, and then Jesus invites Thomas to touch both his hands and his side. So, what does that mean? Does that mean that in some dramatic fashion, Jesus has ascended to the Father immediately after seeing Mary, and then he comes back, and then he can be touched? I mean, what would it mean when Jesus says, don't cling to me? See, Carson is right. This is a very difficult statement. But he also says that we're wrong to think that Jesus is ascending, receiving some kind of a glorified body, and only then returns to earth and can be touched. Instead, Carson says that a close examination of the grammar of this text leads to an entirely different conclusion. And so, from the Greek grammar, Carson suggests the following paraphrase of what Jesus said to Mary Magdalene. Stop touching me or stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. That is, I'm not yet in the ascending state. That is, I'm not yet taken my place, seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And for that reason, you don't have to hang on to me as if I'm going to disappear permanently. You're going to see me very quickly again. See, what Carson means is that he says it's quite likely that Mary has fallen before Jesus' feet and is still clinging to him and unwilling to let him go. But he says, you can let me go because this is not the last time you're going to see me. For the next 40 days, I'm going to still be here. And it's only after that time that I will ascend and you won't see me again. Now, I mention this because there are those who argue that after Jesus died, 
he went to hell, and then he rose and had to go to his father to receive a full resurrection body and then come back, and Mary Magdalene happened to have caught him in between hell and going to heaven and receiving his body. That is to say, some people have developed a very complicated understanding of the resurrection of Jesus, and in the process, I would say they've unwittingly undermined Jesus' words from the cross. You remember he said, it is finished. That is, these people have not grasped that when Jesus died on the cross, he had completed the work of redemption. And they assume after the cross, there was still work that he had to do. Now, I have for a period of two weeks tried to focus our attention on some of the great themes around Easter, the meaning of Christ's death and the meaning of his resurrection. But I've decided that we need to clear up the difficulty of what Jesus did between the cross and the resurrection because there are some very common misconceptions about this very thing. There are some believers who think that Jesus went to hell during this time, and as to what he was doing in hell, well, that changes depending on whom you talk to. And there are those who argue that he went there to proclaim his victory over the demons and to those who were consigned there. And that's the most benign of the theories, but I suppose the reason behind that theory is to give the impression that the damned also needed to hear that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But there are heretical theories that surround the belief that Jesus went to hell. There are those who believe that Jesus had to suffer in hell for our sins. And I say that's profoundly heretical for this kind of teaching undercuts the finality of the victory of the cross. Either Jesus could say while on the cross it is finished or it was not finished and something still was left undone. You see, to argue that Jesus needed to suffer in hell is to deny the finality of his work on the cross. But where does that idea come from? Now, those of you who were raised with the Apostles' Creed will say, well, it probably came from there. You know, the Apostles' Creed is divided into three sections— The first section is a confession of what we believe about the Father, the second about the Son, and the third, what we believe about the Holy Spirit. So in regard to the Son, let me quote it to you. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now there it is, one of the oldest confessions of the Christian church, and that confession states that our Lord, after his cross, descended into hell. And even though it doesn't say he suffered in hell, it probably implies that according to 1 Peter 3.19, that in some fashion he went and preached or proclaimed or announced his great victory to the damned spirits in eternal prisons, spirits that he had conquered and that he had come to announce that he was Lord of all. Now, we've already made the case that when Jesus rose from the dead, that he was not in some kind of a semi-physical condition, that he had to ascend to the Father to get his new body. We made the case that he rose bodily on that Sunday morning and there was nothing to be added to his raised body. But what do we make of that statement in the Apostolic Creed? Now, there are some who argue that the Apostolic Creed comes from the apostles themselves. That is, when the apostles scattered to preach the gospel to every nation, they agreed to write out a document as to what they were committed to preach. So, some believe that that is the origin of that document. 
But here's where it gets murky. We know that, for instance, the Nicene Creed, well, that was established in 325, the Chalcedonian Creed in 451, and and so forth, but the Apostles' Creed, well, it has no clear date of origin. Indeed, it now seems clear that it gradually took shape from the years AD 200 all the way to, guess this, the year 750. And furthermore, that phrase, he descended into hell, did not actually appear in any of the early versions of the creed. And so I would respond to this in two ways. First, because we're back to the Bible and because we believe in sola scriptura, that only the Bible has the last word on what we believe, we therefore examine the creeds just like we examine any other document. We examine them in the light of scripture. It is scripture and not the creeds that have the last word. Now, secondly, since we know that the words descended into hell were added later, so important, as the Apostles' Creed evolved, there seems to be no reason in the world why those churches that make a practice of repeating the Apostles' Creed as a part of their worship on Sunday morning, there is no reason why they should not feel free to simply delete those words from the creed because they are a later addition. All that to say, we are then left with no early tradition that Jesus actually descended into hell, and we are left to examine what the scriptures actually say. Now here, I need to say there are five passages of scripture in this regard that must be examined. So let's start with the first. This is a part of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.27 records Peter is quoting from the Psalms and applying it to the resurrection of Jesus. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. That is, did the Father commit that he would rescue Jesus from hell? At least that's what some teach. Now, the word Hades is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Sheol. And Sheol can refer to hell, but it doesn't always necessarily do so. It often simply means the place of the dead. That's where we want to start our discussion. The Gospel of John challenges a new generation to re-examine what it means to live in genuine faith, to live based on the truths Jesus taught. Dr. Newfeld begins volume two of his study on the Gospel of John called, Why Follow Jesus? It calls us to examine our hearts and to ask, why should I follow Jesus? That question drives this ministry, a question that demands an answer. This month, search out that question for yourself as you listen. But also, we invite you to have a copy of Why Follow Jesus on CD for free. And as an added bonus, request a copy in print of the Gospel of John for yourself or to pass on to someone asking questions about Jesus. So call today and request Why Follow Jesus? And as an added bonus, receive a copy of the Gospel of John all for free by simply calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It is clear from a reading of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, it's quite clear that Peter is not referring to hell when he uses the word Hades. Because as you will remember, he's quoting a Psalm of David, Psalm 16. But says Peter, on the day of Pentecost, the fulfillment of Psalm 16 can't refer to David at all. 
4 says, Peter, I can tell you confidently that David's body is buried and in the tomb to this day. And that tells us exactly what Peter had in mind. Hades, as Peter uses it on the day of Pentecost, refers to the grave, the tomb, and the rotting body of David eventually dissolving. But, says Peter, that didn't happen to Jesus. All that to say that Peter never states that Jesus went to hell. Acts 2.27 can't be made to say that. Indeed, Peter makes the meaning plain. Jesus wasn't abandoned to the grave, says Peter. Now, I've said there are typically five passages that people will point to in order to make the argument that Jesus went to hell. But as we've seen, one of them, Acts 2.27, does not make that point at all. Let's then go to Romans 10.6-7. This also is a quote from the First Testament, and it's applied to Jesus. Now, in this case, the quote comes from Deuteronomy 30, 12 to 14. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is saying that the command that he has given Israel is not so hard that they should say, oh, you have to ascend to heaven to do it, or I have to cross over the sea in order to keep this command. No, no, says Moses, the word or the command is not far off at all. It's near. Now, in Romans 10, Paul quotes from that passage, and he applies it to Jesus. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? So please notice, as before, the passage says nothing about Jesus going to hell after his crucifixion. The descent that Paul mentions in Romans refers to the incarnation, that is, Christ becoming a man and coming down from heaven to earth and not going to hell. So what other texts have been used? Sometimes Ephesians chapter 4, 8 and 9 are being used. That passage says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Now, as before, whatever we make of this text, it's not saying that Jesus descended into hell and led a host of captives held by the devil out of hell. You know, instead, the descent that Paul mentions in this passage, well, let's let Paul say it. The descent is not to hell, but in his own words, into the lower regions. Well, which lower regions? Paul says, I'm referring to the earth where we live. Christ descended to the earth. And from the earth, he led out a great number of the devil's captives from this earth and led them on high. That's no different from what Jesus taught when he said that the gates of hell would not prevail. That is, Satan's hold on human beings would not prevent Jesus from saving men and women and leading them to heaven from the earth. Again, this passage has nothing to do with Jesus being in hell. Well, we're left with two more passages. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Well. This passage has been used by some to say that Christ went into hell, that he preached the gospel there, and that he offered people there a second chance so that they could be brought out of hell in the same way that Noah was brought out of the flood. 
Now, in response to that, I offer three conclusions. First, the idea of a second chance after death is denied by the rest of the Bible. For instance, Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's the sequence. Not death, then hell, then a second chance, then heaven, then judgment. No, that's not what the text says. Okay, my second conclusion is that there are two Greek words that have sometimes been translated as preached in our English Bible. One is the Greek word euangeliezomai, and that word simply means to evangelize, to preach, or to win converts. The other Greek word is the word kirudzo, which means to proclaim. Listen, Peter never says that Jesus evangelized the spirits in prison, whoever they were. He says he proclaimed to them. That leaves out the possibility of the evangelization of the damned. But still, who are these spirits in prison? Well, some have suggested that they're demonic spirits to whom Jesus proclaimed his great and final victory, telling them, you guys bet on the wrong horse. That is, according to some, this is what Jesus did between the time of the cross and the resurrection. And others suggest that the spirits in prison were the Old Testament saints whom Christ released after his atoning death on the cross. Let me suggest a different solution, and this was the interpretation of this very passage that was made by Augustine of Hippo way back in the 4th century, a man that many consider to be the greatest Bible teacher for about a thousand years. So at the very least, I guess we should listen to him. And Augustine said the passage had absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus did between his death and his resurrection. The spirits in prison in this text refers to unbelievers in the time of Noah. Now, it is true that those unbelievers are now in prison. That is, they are now in hell. But in the days of Noah, Christ preached to those spirits, and he did it through Noah. That is, Noah preached at the inspiration of Jesus. But those spirits didn't obey, and so, consequently, they're in prison to this day. They are in hell. So notice again, this passage doesn't say that Jesus preached to the people in hell. Rather, it says that the people in hell once heard Jesus preach to them. Well, then that leaves us with only one text left, and this one comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. And this passage says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, as before, this passage is sometimes used by those who will argue that people will have a a second chance after death. But the context makes that impossible. You see, Peter is arguing that Christians should prepare to suffer in the flesh in this life, that they should resist the temptation to live in the passions of this world. He says, don't be like that. And then he adds in verse 5, for the people that live that way will stand before the one who will judge the living and the dead. Now, if Peter were then to conclude, ah, but those people are going to get a second chance, well, he would have just undercut his entire argument. No, no, Peter is saying the opposite. He is saying resist temptation to the point of dying, for you don't want to face the judge after death, having been unrepentant in this life. So then, well, what does verse 6 mean? Verse 6 speaks not to unbelievers, but to believers. Those who are believers have now died. But why was the gospel preached to them, seeing that they're dead now? And Peter says it was preached to them so that they might live in the Spirit, that is, they might receive eternal life. 
You see? Not only does the Bible offer no hope to those who have died, indeed, the Bible is quite clear that death closes the door to future salvation. Now is the day of salvation, not not after death. See, the Bible never makes a statement that Jesus went to hell. Well then, what did Jesus do in those three days between his death and his bodily resurrection? So are you ready? I'm going to give you the answer. He did the same thing that every believer after him will also do at the time of their death. When Jesus died, his dead body remained in the grave and his soul or his spirit went immediately into the presence of his Father in heaven. And all heaven would have rejoiced for he had won the greatest of all victories on the cross. And then after three days on Easter morning, his body was reunited with his spirit and he was bodily raised with the power of an immortal and indestructible body. And here's the good news. He is the first fruit and he will do the same for you. When you die, you will be made one with Christ. That is, your spirit or soul will go directly into the presence of God and heaven will rejoice that one more of the saved has come home. And then when Christ returns, your spirit or your soul will be reunited with your body and you, like Christ, will be reunited with a body that is indestructible, never to die again. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the wonderful truth of what Christ did. He paved the way for the resurrection of all who would follow after him. John, I think you probably alluded to this or spoke about this in your message, but just to cover some some ground again, you know, I, I wonder what is what is the purpose for people to think that Jesus had to go to hell as though the cross weren't enough? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there, you know, some people they've heard a sermon on it, so they believe it. Uh, that does happen, um, and and uh, some of them have misunderstood, as I've said, a number of Bible passages. And so they've not understood those passages in context and therefore come to er erroneous conclusions. But, you know, as I've said, the, the worst possible conclusion you can come to is to say that the cross wasn't enough. And when we say that, then Jesus' words, it is finished, sound hollow, they sound empty, and it means nothing at all. So it is important for believers, you know, to keep our eyes focused on what the Bible actually teaches us rather than to come up with these fanciful theories that take us further and further away from our redemption. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow for a continuation of our Easter series, It's Purpose and Promise, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board.